series about the church rising up and entering into battle. We're living in unprecedented times. We're, we're seeing things that we thought we would never see in our nation. And Christians have come up to me time and time again and said, Pastor, what can we do? What can we do to save our nation? And that's, that's what we were focusing on the last three weeks. Well, today I want to take off from that series and enter into another series that is just as important. I want to talk to you today about being dressed for battle. Because you don't want to enter into battle without the right tools. You don't want to enter into battle unless you're fully armored up. Amen? Most of us uh, in Alaska, we recognize that you don't want to go out into bear country without a weapon that will do the job. You don't take a little 380 pistol and think you're going to protect yourself from a bear. You're just going to make him mad. In the same way, we need to understand the weapons that God has given us, that our weapons are mighty in God. And so I want you to turn with me today to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 through 5. We're going to begin this series and talk about spiritual weapons. We need to battle for our nation, amen? We need to battle for our families, we need to battle for our valley, for our church, for our state. We need to be battling, and God's Word calls us soldiers. It calls us into battle. And church, if there's ever been a time that the church needs to rise up and fight, it's right now. Amen? Let's look at this passage of Scripture. We're just going to begin with these three verses today. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, this passage is talking about spiritual warfare. Paul writes, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Notice that Paul says we are supposed to be at war. Verse 4 says, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, I want us to look at the verse 5 for just a second. Notice the arguments and the thoughts are said to be things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. We need to understand that the arguments and the thoughts that he's speaking about here have a spiritual foundation. There are spiritual beings behind those thoughts. And that's who we're battling. All the evil that we see operating in the world today, there is a spiritual source behind it. And I'm not saying we don't blame people that do evil things. They make the choice to go along. But they are being influenced by the spiritual realm. That's Bible. That's Scripture. You can't get away from that. Jesus talks about fallen angels. He calls them demons. He wasn't just catering to something that 
was a superstition in that day because whenever Jesus encountered someone that was speaking something wrong or teaching something wrong, he'd say, you have heard that it is said, but I say, and he would correct it. So Jesus dealt with them. He set people free. And Paul here is teaching us, if you really want to know what the source behind every bit of chaos and destruction and evil that we see, not only taking place in the United States, but in the world today, it's spiritual. So how do we battle it? How do we battle it? We battle it spiritually. That's what Paul's telling us here. And our weapons are not carnal, but they're mighty through God. That's what Paul says. So I want us to look at this passage today, and there's, there's a couple of other things. The word walk here means to live and carry on in a general vicinity. So Paul's saying that everything that I do, I do in the flesh for the most part. He's saying, I eat in the flesh, I sleep in the flesh, I recreate in the flesh, I learn in the flesh, I think in the flesh. All these things are taking place in a body of flesh. And he was aware of the weaknesses of the flesh. He said, we do not war according to the flesh. He's acknowledging that this is a spiritual battle at its foundation, and so we can't just address it in the physical. And you say, well, pastor, what about if, if that evil threat is right in front of me, coming against me or coming against my family? Do I just give in and let that evil overtake me? No. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if somebody breaks into your house and is threatening your family, you have every right scripturally to protect your family. In fact, you're sinning if you don't. I'm going to say that again. You're sinning if you don't protect your family. As the head of the family, men, we're called to protect our children and our wives. In Nehemiah, and I could do a whole message on this. I don't know why I'm getting off on it. but Nehemiah, they're building the wall, and it specifically says they built the wall with a sword in one hand, and the other hand was free, and they were building the wall. Why? Because the evil was manifesting in the physical realm. But underneath that, where the battle is truly going to be won, is when we rise up and we take the battle to the enemy, the foundation, which is spiritual. That's how we confront what's going on in our nation. Paul was aware of this evil and he understood that evil in the flesh is energized spiritually. And he relates to Roman soldiers. And I want you to think about that. What is Paul saying about the Roman soldiers? He's telling us that his mentality was a militant attitude just like a Roman soldier. And I want to ask you, do you have the attitude of a Roman soldier? Because Paul was saying he had that attitude. And he's calling the church to have that attitude. What? Pastor, surely not. Yes! 
That's what he's calling it. Think about it. Roman soldiers were the, the greatest fighting force, force in that time. One of the greatest fighting forces in history. They were equipped with the armor that they needed, the weapons that they needed, and they had an attitude. The attitude was an attitude of confidence. Amen? They knew they were going to whip the enemy. And church, guess what? I have read the end of the book, and we whip the enemy. That's God's promise. That's God's promise. But these men were professionals. They, they understood the weapons of war. They were soldiers. It, they, would, they were such confident men that they wanted to be placed on the front lines so that they could strike the enemy. Church, I want to ask you, do you ever want to be on the front lines spiritually because you're ready to strike the enemy? That was Paul's attitude. In addition, the Roman soldiers frequently would even volunteer to go on dangerous missions that, didn't, that others didn't want to undertake. They, they would desire to sneak into the enemy's territory and cause havoc. They desired to go behind enemy lines and cause trouble. If you've read headlines recently about things going on in Iran... It looks like there is some group that is systematically going around and causing havoc in that country because of the things blowing up. And that's what Paul's attitude was. He says, I want to go where the enemy is behind enemy lines. I want to see people set free. I want to see the agenda of God overwhelm the agenda of the enemy. Amen? So they were trained, they were committed, and Paul uses the word war here, and all those things are contained in that word war that Paul is using. And he's calling the church to have that mentality. In verse 16 of this same chapter, listen to what Paul says. It says, to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you, and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. What is he saying there? He's saying, I want to go behind enemy lines. He's saying, I want to go where there isn't the gospel. I want to go and, and, and push back the enemy. I want to attack the enemy at his strongest. That's what he's saying there. And we see that in Paul's attitude here. And what he does just that. He goes to Ephesus. He goes to Corinth. Those were centers of sensuality and demonic activity in that day. And that's where Paul wanted to go. And I want to ask you, church, do you want to go behind enemy lines and see the glory of God manifested? That's the attitude that, that Paul had. And that's the attitude that Paul calls us to. I want to go behind enemy lines. I want to get outside of these, these four walls, and, or 12 walls, I want to get outside of this place and I want to go take the gospel to, of Jesus Christ to people that are behind the enemy lines, people that are in bondage, people that are struggling, people that don't know Jesus and they're living under that weight of deception of the enemy. I want to go to them and tell them, 
I have a confidence and my confidence is in God. And God is greater than what you're experiencing. And He loves you and He wants to set you free. Amen. Now look at verse 4 again. Now Paul was educated. He was a Pharisee's Pharisee. Paul had the training. He had the, the, uh, the knowledge of that day. But look at verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. So first Paul tells us that we do have weapons. Everybody say hallelujah. God hasn't just placed us on this earth without ways to not only defend ourselves spiritually, but to take the battle to the enemy. Our weapons are weapons of mass destruction when it comes to the spiritual enemy that we face. Uh, I thought somebody would like that. God doesn't send you to go face the grizzly bear with a little 380 pistol. He gives you a nuclear bomb. Amen? Our weapons are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. Now, our weapons are listed in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13 through 18. I want you to turn over there. Now normally when, when you come to this passage in Scripture, you kind of read through it and just take it all in. But we're not going to get very far in this passage today. Now the word warfare, the word warfare in this passage is taken from the Greek word stratos. It's the word that we get our word strategy from. And church, there are too many Christians that are trying to do battle without strategy, without the help of the Holy Spirit guiding them and directing them. What do I do? How do I pray? Where do I go? And church, we need the strategy, divine strategy of God in order to face the battle that we, we face. So let, let's look at Ephesians 6. And let's look at, I'm going to read quickly. Verses 13 through 18. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. That means, withstand means that there's evil things, there's hardships, there's, there's difficulties, annoyances, there's pain, there's trouble, there's physical things. All of these things we're going to face, but church, we're going to stand through it all. And having done all to stand, that means we're preparing ourselves to stand even in the negative, difficult times. It says, stand therefore. Stand therefore. Having girded your waist with the truth. The first thing he mentions is the loin belt, a Roman loin belt. It's girding ourselves with the truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith which, with, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit 
which is the Word of God. Praying always. How do we enter into the battle? We suit up in the armor, but we enter into the battle through prayer. Praying always with all prayer, supplications in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance. The idea of supplication, church, I mentioned this, but I I always want to mention it again because it's so important. The idea of supplication is knowing the promises in God's Word for you. And it's not being satisfied with the circumstance that you're in when God has promised you something different. So you take a stance, I'm going to keep praying, I'm going to keep believing God, I'm going to keep on trusting His Word until what He's promised comes to pass and overrules the situation that I'm in. Amen? In the Greek word for stand, here means to stand upright. It's the image of a soldier who's confident and proud to be a soldier. In church, we are to be proud of being a Christian. We live in a time when people put Christians down. They mock Christians. We live in a time when they tell you, just shut up about your religion. But that is not what we see in the New Testament church. That's not what we see in the life of Paul. Paul here is saying, stand up straight. Stand up at attention. Be proud that you're on God's team. That you're a soldier for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's okay to let people know, I believe in the Word of God. I believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of the living God. Amen? So we prepare ourselves to stand during these negative times. Look at verse 14. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The first piece of weaponry that Paul wants us to notice is the loin belt. Now this was probably the least attractive part of of a Roman soldier's armor. Many pieces of his armor were very decorative, very beautiful, ornate. But not the loin belt. The loin belt was probably the least noticed, but listen to this church, it was the most important. You say, what? What about the helmet of salvation or the breastplate of righteousness? What about a shield of faith? What about the sword of the Spirit? It's the most important church. That's why Paul starts with it. It's the most important, listen to this. It is the most important because it holds everything together. It holds the uniform together. We need to understand that. How many of you guys have have noticed somebody that doesn't have a belt on and he's got baggy pants and they're about to fall off. You know what I'm talking about. I've even seen them walking. And what, what to, it's so comical because when they try to run or jog or move fast, they're, they're holding their pants up. You know, <laughs> Everywhere they go. And, and Paul's saying, 
you don't go into battle trying to hold your uniform on. You have your belt and everything's secured to it. The shield is secured to it. The, the sword is secured to it. Even the breastplate would flap in the wind without being secured. So it holds your armor together so that you're ready to take that stance in battle. Amen? So it's the most important piece because without it, you'd be trying to battle like this. Oh, I can't. I got, where's my shield? i got to find my shield. And spiritually, church, there are too many people, too many Christians that are going through life having to hold up their spirituality because they're not suited up with the belt of truth. Amen? We need that belt. We have to have that belt. With it, it made a soldier confident. He had his weapons there. He was secure. He was ready to go into battle. What is the belt of truth? Church, this is the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the living Word. This is truth. And church, if you don't know the Word, you're not prepared for battle. If you don't spend time in the Word, your spiritual life is going to be flapping in the wind. You're going to be running around trying to hold your pants up if you don't know the Word and apply the Word. The Word is our belt of truth. Church, we're not ashamed to say this is the Word of the living God. It is the, the Word that's given to us to live our lives by. Amen? Today, and sadly, many Christians even doubt the Word of God. And my prayer is today that when you leave this service, there will be zero doubt in your heart that this is God's Word for your life. Several years ago, I was taking an advanced level course, and I read this book, and the author of this book, with all the doctorates behind his name, he said, we really cannot believe and trust in the first part of Genesis. That's what he said. He didn't believe it. Jesus believed it. Jesus quoted from it. Jesus talked about Adam. So if you take away Genesis, church, guess what? You're taking away what Jesus believed. What Jesus reaffirmed is God's Word. You say, well, some of it's difficult to believe, Pastor. I'm glad. I'm thankful because the God that we serve is so far greater than what we can understand with our little finite minds. And that's the God that's in control today. Amen? That's the God that's in control of my life. And I pray that's the God that's in control of your life. When it says, in the beginning, God created... If you believe that first part, guess what? It's easy to take and comprehend and believe the rest of Scripture. If you believe that there is a God who spoke this universe into existence, then guess what, church? Everything else is going to be pretty easy to believe. Amen? I believe in Adam and Eve. I believe the Word of God. 
Because Jesus did. I want to give you some statistics right now. There's a, there's a, a study called literary criticism. Everybody say literary criticism. And it's a field of study. That's not where, you know, these critics get together and say, I like this book or I don't like this book. Literary criticism is a field of study by scholars. Scholars that look at the, the, the book that we have now and they study how old are the most ancient copies that we have to date from the original. When it was written, when are, how old are our oldest copies, how many of those copies are there. And they do that so that they can read through, so that they can take a book from antiquity and they can say, we believe this is a sound you know, representation of what was the original. We believe this, they have copied it. We have, the, the orig- we have what was written originally. And it's called literary criticism. And so I want to give you two of the, two of the most uh, famous are... Plato and Aristotle. Anybody ever heard of those guys? Let me give you a quick statistic. Well, Plato and Aristotle, from ancient times, the oldest uh, writings of Plato were written about 900 A.D. That's when he wrote them. Now, the copies that we have... Or that was about 1,100 years between when he wrote them and the copies that we have today. 1,100 years. He wrote it about 900 A.D. 1,100 years later is when we have the oldest copies. Now Aristotle, his oldest copy was in uh, 1,100 A.D. And his old, I mean his original was, and then his oldest copy was about 1,300 years after that. And so we have a, a, a broad number of years between the original and the oldest copies that we have. Now, what about the number of copies, Pastor? Well, for Plato, we have about seven of the ancient copies. For Aristotle, we have five of the most ancient copies. So you, the literary critics would examine this, they would study it, and they present the writings of Aristotle and Plato today as being accurate, what they truly wrote. But when it comes to the New Testament, listen to this, there's over 5,000 Greek manuscripts. The, the New Testament was written between 50 and 100 A.D. And the oldest, oldest copies are but date back to 330 to 380 AD. In other words, from the original to the oldest copies we have is only 250 years. 250 years. Then, if you see the Greek manuscripts of 5,000, the oldest manuscripts, then Jerome translated it into the Latin language in the 4th century. And there are over 8,000 copies of what we call the Latin Vulgate. So that right there is 13,000 copies. Then if you take the fragments 
and the other earlier versions, there's about 9,300 of those. So church, a literary critic, many of them who are not believers in Jesus Christ, will tell you, according to the field of study, we have what was written then. Why do people mock it? Why do people ridicule it? Why do people doubt? It's because they're, they're ignorant of the truth. They say, oh, you can't trust that. Yes, you can. You can trust it more than you can trust the writings of Plato or Aristotle. What we have now is what they wrote then. It doesn't even compare. Only 250 years apart from, from, from the copy to the original and over 24,000 copies to look at to make sure what we have today is what we had then. That's amazing, isn't it? Amen? So church, why do people struggle? Why do they say you can't trust the Bible? I'll tell you why. They don't want to be held accountable. They don't want to admit that this book has been supernaturally contained through the years so that every generation can open it up and absorb it and live their lives by it. Why? Because they don't want to be held to the, the morality of God's Word. That's why it's under attack today by so many different groups. It's because they want to live the way they want to live and they don't want to live according to the law of God. And if they believe this, is what, they, what we originally had is still being transferred down, guess what? Then there's going to be a hint that yes, there is a God and yes, they're going to be held accountable one day. So church, as Paul said, stand up and be proud that you are girded with the truth of the living God. Don't compromise the truth of the living God. Don't step back from it, but say, I know that this is God's Word and I live my life by it. Amen? How many want success in this life? I think everybody wants success. And I'm not talking about financial success, but that's part of being successful. Everybody wants enough money to live on. But how many want to have success in other areas of your life? God's Word says that if you want success, then you need to know His Word and apply His Word. In, in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, I love this passage. I love Joshua, but especially this first chapter. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. You want to prosper? You want to be successful? Then you read God's Word. You live your life according to the Word of God. Amen? So as a nation, if we want to be prosperous, and we want to be successful, we have to get back to the, to the Word of God. Amen? It's not just about electing someone to office. And I, again, I, I thank God for all those who, who feel that call to, to go and serve their country and to serve the people. And God will give you wisdom. He will give you direction. But church, that's not where the battle's going to be won. 
It's going to be one when the church rises up in the, the truth, the belt of truth, and we go forward and we pray and we share the love of Jesus and we preach and teach the Word of God. Amen? Secondly, we're promised strength and endurance. How many need strength and endurance? Amen. I do all the time. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 through 27, it says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, this is Jesus speaking, I will liken him to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. You want to have a firm foundation. That firm foundation is the truth, the Word of God. It's Jesus. That's what we're founded on, church. That is our solid rock. That's what's going to give us strength and endurance for the day that we live in. Amen? People all the time come to me and say, oh, I wish I'd been born some other time, some other, you know, a hundred years ago. I wanted to be a, a, a mountain man in the cabin. I say, God purposed the day that you would enter in this, in this world and He knows the day you're going to leave. And while you're in between those two, you live for Him. And fulfill his purpose. That's how we'll have the strength and endurance in the day that we live. Finally, this book transforms lives. The greatest evidence that this is the Word of God is you. Amen? I'll tell you right now, you don't want to know Pastor Milt without Jesus. You don't. You don't want to know Him without Jesus. And guess what? I don't want to know you without Jesus either. <laughs> but church, Jesus still transforms lives. His Word still transforms hearts and lives of people. Amen? People are still just changed in the presence of God when they read the Word. I've heard countless numerous testimonies of people that weren't listening to the TV evangelists or the TV pastors. They weren't going to a Bible school. They weren't attending church. But they took the Bible and they began to read it. And all of a sudden, it came alive in their hearts and in their lives. And they said, I want to know the God that, gave, that this Word is talking about. And they say yes to Jesus. And that that garbage of the enemy that has had them in bondage is broken off of their lives it's lifted off of their lives and they're changed amen that's why on facebook i don't comment a lot but i take pictures of my bible and i post it why because i want people to see the word of god to read the word of god to get the Word of God inside their hearts and lives. It transforms our lives. 2 Timothy puts it this way. 
Verse 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Church, it's powerful. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, it says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. You show me someone who's struggling in their faith, and I'll show you someone who's not in the Word of God. At least not enough. Because we're, when we're in God's Word, we're hearing God's Word. We're reading it. Read it out loud. Turn to somebody and tell them, read the Word of God out loud to yourself. Why, Pastor? Because it says right here, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It affects us differently when we hear it. So don't just come and hear a little bit of the Word of God at church on, in the services, but read God's Word aloud. Read it to your children. Read it to your family. And finally, I want to re read one more verse. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Church, the Word of God penetrates what is the eternal aspect of our lives and what is the temporal thoughts and attitudes. It, it, it divides so that we see, am I just getting caught up in, in thoughts and attitudes of the flesh, the temporal, it's just going to be here and then one day be gone? Or am I thinking and lining up my life according to the eternal things that God has? And that's what He's called us to. Amen? So I want to challenge you today as the worship team comes. You say, Pastor, I, I've heard many messages on the Bible. I have too. I preach many messages on the Bible. Why? Why? Because the Holy Spirit saw fit to lead Paul to say, you've got to be girded up with the truth. There are those today that want to tell us, well, you have your truth, that's your truth, and I've got my truth. One day they're in for a big surprise. You say, well, what about the other religions, Pastor? I know there's some people that are trying to do good things, that are trying to be their best, that are caught up in various different religions. But religion doesn't get you right with God. Religion isn't going to give you the assurance you're going to stand before Jesus and be right with Him one day. Amen? It's not about religion. It's not about what denomination you are. It's about Having a relationship with Jesus Christ and having 
His Word girded around your life so that all of your armor, all of your weapons are ready and accessible and you're ready to stand and you're ready to battle and see the victory won. And church, as a pastor, I'll, I'll be open and honest with you. There's times when I come home after Sunday and I'll say, God, did I just flop why aren't they getting it why don't they seem to care why why do they just seem to sit there like a bump on a log in church we can't just sit here like a bump on a log and you're probably going to get tired of me saying this but church, if we don't fight for our nation, our nation's going to be lost. And I'm not trying to be political. I'm trying to be just truthful. I want our nation to continue to, to have the freedoms and the blessings that we know. Because I want my kids and my grandkids to experience that. It has changed so drastically just in my lifetime. When I was a little boy in elementary school, you could still pray in, in school. Every morning, a different student would come to the principal's office, and they would lead the whole school in prayer. And everyone would bow their heads along with the teacher. Today, we've taken God out of our schools. Shortly after that, they took God out of the schools. Everything began to skyrocket as far as drugs and alcohol and immorality. You can research it, church. You can see that it's the truth. That's the effect. We have to get God center in our nation again. We have to have Him foundational in our nation again. The first reader in our schools was produced by the Congress. The Congress had the Bible printed as the first reader in our school. If you begin to research the history of the founding fathers, you will see the majority of them were devout, strong men of God. From their writings, from their letters. And when they wrote the Declaration of Independence, one of the founding fathers even said this, all the ideas contained, I love this, all the ideas that were contained in the Declaration of Independence were what the founding fathers had heard preached the, the several years before they declared independence. You can research it. It's true. And we've got to get back to that foundation. I can't do that. You can't do that. But we can pray. And as we pray, God's going to move. And we're going to see those spiritual aspects that are manifesting as evil. We're going to see God begin to take them out. Amen? Listen to this. The first time they came together when they were going to write the Declaration of Independence, they started with prayer. 
And I'm not talking about, Lord Jesus, we need Your help. Give us wisdom in this. Amen. You want to know how long that first prayer meeting was? It was two solid hours of prayer. Our history books won't tell you that. Two solid hours. They came together. They knew their lives were going to be on the line at the, at the Declaration of Independence. Their families' lives were going to be on the line. So what did they do? They sought God. God directed them. God gave them divine understanding and ideas how to formulate this. And what's amazing is that it's still in effect today. I forget how many years, somebody, some scholarly person tell me, it's, it's over 240 years, quick mathematician. But you, did you know that most of the articles that nations live under, the average length is only 17 years? Think about that. That's the average. And yet ours is over 240. Why? Because it was divinely inspired. God had a plan. And God still has a plan for our nation. And we need that freedom so that we can send missionaries, so that we can reach out in benevolence. We need to be great so that we can share the light of Jesus around the world. And I'm not saying we haven't had mistakes. I'm not saying we're a perfect nation. But I will tell you there is no doubt God had a plan for our nation. God was intervening in our nation. Our nation has blessed others around the world. And church, we need to still bless others around the world. And I'm going to preach another message, so stand up. Father, I just thank You that we have the belt of truth. And Lord, I know there are people trying to do their best, trying to be good, that are caught up in other religions and have other uh, books that they hold sacred. But Lord, those books are not the truth. You're Word is the truth. You are the living Word. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes unto the Father except by You. So Lord, we just agree together today. Lord, I pray that You would stir our hearts. Lord, to be militant in our thinking. Lord, just like Paul. Lord, we want to be frontline soldiers. Lord, we want to penetrate the front lines of the enemy. Go behind the enemy lines and, Lord, cause havoc among our spiritual enemies. Lord, we want to stand strong. We want to stand 
proud that we're a Christian, Lord. We want to stand for You and stand for Your Word. And Lord, as we continue this study in the next few weeks, Lord, I pray that we would see ourselves as genuine warriors for You. That when You call us to get down on our knees and pray, Lord, that we would say yes. That You'd lay things on our heart to pray for. Lord, we pray for all those that are in authority above us. Lord, for our mayors and our our representatives, our senators, our congress, Lord, our president, our governors, Lord, our Supreme Court. We pray, Lord, that Your hand would be upon them, that You would stir their hearts to make righteous decisions that would bring blessing from God upon our nation again. And Lord, help us Help us, Lord, to fight the good fight of faith. To see our nation turned around for the next generation. And we ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. As the worship team leads us in a song, we're going to take just a few moments. I'm going to invite the prayer team to come forward around the back. And if you have a prayer need, you may be in a battle personally today. There may be a financial battle. It may be a battle within your family. It may be a battle at work. Whatever that battle is, come join other soldiers in the cross. Come and agree with them in prayer today. Whatever you're facing today, we want to pray with you. If you don't have a need today, then just join in with the worship team and just worship the Lord for a few more minutes before we go. Go ahead.